I'm Jeff Hebert, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we explore God's good news for imperfect people like you and me. And wow, we are finally to the last episode of season one. I never thought it would uh, take this many episodes. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John to try and get uh, what I think is an up-close and personal look at Jesus, what he taught, how he related to people, the impact of his words and deeds as he embraced his calling to be God's Messiah, a calling that wasn't just about words and deeds, but also about his very essence as the second person of the Trinity. I have to say, I'm almost sorry to come to an end here. It's been such an enriching experience for me to go chapter by chapter through the Gospel of John. I hope it's been an enriching experience for you as well. Um, After this episode, we're going to turn the page and do something different, a short season on the Psalms, particularly Psalm 23, and then some vignettes from the life of David. And then at the end of November, I'm having knee replacement surgery and the podcast will go dark for a few weeks so I can focus on my physical therapy and recovery and such. Uh, Give me a chance to get ready to launch a brand new series in January called Singing the Blues which will be a surprising look at the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. All right, well, we're into chapter 21 of John. Uh, To do that, to jump into it, we need to first review the end of chapter 20, where John writes in verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, that really sounds like an ending to me. Everything written so that people will believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Boom. That's like John should have just dropped the mic, walked off stage. But then comes chapter 21 and really a second ending paragraph in verse 24 that goes like this. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So what's going on here with this one more story about Jesus and the disciples fishing and Peter's solo time with Jesus on the beach? Well, most scholars feel that John ended his draft of the gospel at the end of chapter 20. And he could have just stopped there, but his disciples kind of couldn't let the story end there because he had told them about other things that had happened, particularly about this one last encounter on the beach. And that story was too good to leave out. And so they added it at the end of the gospel and gave it that vote of authenticity that we see in verse 24, that this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. Using the third-person pronoun here shows us that John didn't write that about himself. Someone else wrote that about him, just like Moses didn't finish Exodus with the description of his own death and the transfer of power to Joshua. Other anonymous chroniclers finished out that ending. And we see this in a number of places in Scripture. But this is not considered to be a later addition and that, that may not be read with the same authority as Scripture, such as the extra two endings that were written for the Gospel of Mark. And if you've got a good study Bible, those endings will be included at the end of Mark, but highlighted as later editions. This is John's story, and this ending for John was the earliest one distributed to the church 
in line with John's wishes. So why? Why was it so significant or what was so significant about this story that it was needed to round out the ending of John's gospel on the life of Jesus? Well, the scene is the Sea of Galilee. The disciples have come there actually in obedience to the word of Jesus to Mary Magdalene in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, after his resurrection. He says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Now, John picks up the account of what happened in that meeting, in starting in verse or chapter 21, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but his disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. What we see here is that the disciples just kind of went back to what they knew, what was familiar to most of them, and that was fishing. After all, the bills weren't going to pay themselves, and there was uh, no intact movement uh, that would follow them around to fund their expenses. Plus, I think they just didn't know what else to do. They were kind of dazed by their initial encounters with Jesus in the locked room and then on the road to, to Emmaus. And so there's something kind of comforting in doing the thing that you're used to doing. There's a rhythm, there's a cadence of getting back into it. And in those days, much of the fishing in the Sea of Galilee was done at night, and that's actually still true today. Fishermen used torches to attract the fish to the boat and then netted them. But although they were expert fishermen, the disciples had labored throughout the night and had caught nothing. And that must have been just kind of a, a really discouraging experience for them. Maybe they lost their touch. Maybe they'd been away from it for too long. And actually, John's account makes clear that it was Jesus' intention that they catch nothing on this one occasion. And what we see next is such a beautiful story of how Jesus deals with all of us less than perfect people. This really is a quintessential wabi-sabi story. The disciples are discouraged, not just from the total lack of uh, fish or no luck with their fishing, but also about what to do in life 
even with the resurrection sightings of Jesus. They were listless because perhaps now they had too much time to think about their personal failures, not just their fishing failure. All of them had failed Jesus in the garden. Remember that, not just Peter. All of them ran. When the chips were down, they all folded. They couldn't handle the pressure. And sure, Peter was just the most boisterous. He just said what the others were usually thinking. So I think they're all struggling with a sense of guilt and shame for how they acted around the arrest and the crucifixion. And let's face it, failure is a very demoralizing thing. You know what that's like. I'm sure there are times when you've tried hard to accomplish something when you did your best or you thought what was your best. Like these fishermen, you gave all your energy, used all, utilized all your resources, but then you gained nothing in return. And maybe you actually fell on your face in front of others. Maybe it was just within yourself, but even let's face it, aren't we our, often our worst critics? Of course, we know that although failure is a painful experience, valuable lessons can be gained through it. And we also know that there's a different kind of failure in the spiritual realm. You can get all the prizes from the world, from our culture, and still fail in relation to God. American evangelist D.L. Moody once said, Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. People who think they have done it all themselves are common today. We honor and promote the self-made person. But there's a danger for the self-made person because they start to worship the creator, their creator. Were it not for God's providing hand, were it not God who provided our intellect, our temperament, our very breath, our intelligence, we would have neither the opportunities nor the resources to even begin with. Success in the world's eyes can be such a snare. Failure can lead to discouragement, but success can lead to pride and a false sense of self-sufficiency. Failure can have remarkable benefits. It's often the only test by which the real worth of a person can be known. How do you handle failure? That would be a great job interview question. Because it's in failure that a person begins to think and to wonder and to look around and to seek for the reasons for what happened and to look upwards to him who can turn failure into growth. John goes on to show what God can do with a night of failure, literally a boatload of fish. Now, some skeptical scholars insist that this was a natural occurrence, that as he stood on the shore, Jesus could sort of see the disciples were in the boat, and he could see what they couldn't see, that the light was better from his vantage point, and so on. I mean, that's just kind of silly, I think, but people do say that kind of stuff. No, Jesus is doing something intentional here. He's making this happen. A hundred yards is a considerable distance, and maybe Jesus had x-ray eyes or super polarized uh, lenses so that he could see underwater. No, there's no question that our resurrected Jesus, he summoned these fish to be there. This was a sign to the apostles that the Lord was at work, and they recognized him. When the stranger bid them drop their net on the right side of the boat, and it was immediately filled with fish, their minds must have leaped back to the other occasion recorded for us in Luke 5, the first calling of Peter, where upon his command they let down their nets and they caught so many fish the nets began to break. Now John, who understands more quickly than Peter, he says, it's the Lord in verse 7. Of course, John is first. He's first to the tomb, first to recognize Jesus. I guess he just likes, <clears throat> likes being one up on Peter. But again, Peter acts more boldly than John. Remember, he was the first one to enter the tomb of Jesus. And so here he wraps his robe around him, leaps into the sea, and swims ashore. And then we have this very 
touching scene on the beach. Jesus has got a fire going. He's got fish sizzling. Where'd the fish come from? Not from the fish that were caught out on the Sea of Galilee just now. These were fish that were, those fish were still out in the water while he was making the fire. It could be another miracle like the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus just multiplied the bread and the fish for the crowds, but we're not sure. Jesus has breakfast all laid out for them. When the disciples landed, the charcoal fire was already lit and the fish and the bread were cooking there. Jesus didn't need them to provide the fish. He could summon an abundance of fish to their boat. I think this is a way of him saying that all we have comes from the hand of God. We did not provide this world or the food that is in it. We do not provide the opportunities that come our way. Many of them come to us straight out of the blue because behind all of this is the invisible hand of God who's already been at work. God is always previous, always at work, and he has already put us in the right place, into the right circumstances, leading us into situations we could never have designed for ourselves. We operate by his grace and according to his efforts. <clears throat> but notice that Jesus then invites the disciples to bring the fish that they have caught. And this kind of beautifully suggests the way God works us with us. As I read through scripture, I'm continually astonished at the privilege given to us by God of being co-laborers with him. If you look back through this gospel, you'll see that human labor and human participation was involved in almost all of the miracles of Jesus. For instance, when Jesus changed the water into wine, he included the servants in the demonstration. Remember when Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish which the boy gave to him in order to feed the multitude? He first sent the disciples searching through the crowd to see what you know uh, food they, they might have had. The wonder of this is that God, who could easily do it all himself, nevertheless gave the servants, the boy, the crowd, the disciples, the great privilege of being co-workers with him. What Jesus invites you to do may be a very simple thing. You may have an opportunity to invite your neighbors in for a cup of coffee and maybe develop a relationship where you could share your faith with them. And while that may seem like an insignificant thing now, when history has come to an end and we're all gathered on the shore with Jesus, that may well be the greatest thing that you've ever done, is invite somebody else to faith. I hope you see the tremendous privilege God has given you to work with him in what he's doing in the world. The media may give the impression that the important things are happening in Washington or New York City or someplace like that, world capitals. But that is not really so. If our ultimate hope is in our elected officials or our form of government, then we are all in big trouble. The spreading of the word of truth, the opening of people's eyes to the realities of life, the understanding of our humanity through the word of God, laboring with God to put aside the destructive and dehumanizing forces of earth, that is the work that is important and worth getting excited about. The church in America right now is bruised and battered, and much of that damage is self-inflicted. But if we can recover our primary task as disciples, we are privileged to be invited to join with Jesus in loving the world and the people around us. Now, John reports that there were exactly 153 fish caught in the net. Lots of speculation among Bible commentators that you know, people who are really into numerology and things like that, that, that John had a specific reason for giving that specific number. Some of the guesses as to what that number means are 
pretty mind-boggling to say the least. One ancient commentator said it indicated that the year 153 AD was going to be a very important year, possibly the year of Jesus's return. But no one has been able to find out anything unusual that happened that year. Another suggestion was that the number 100 stood for the Gentiles, the largest number. 50 stood for the Jews because they're only half as important or as many, you know, and, and the, the three stands for the Trinity. Another obviously mathematically minded commentator added the numbers from 1 through 17 and found that they added up to 153. But he failed to say, you know, what the significance of that is. Another answer suggested by an early church fire, uh, Father Jeremiah, who was said that among the Greeks it was widely regarded that there were 153 species of fish in the sea, and this was God's way of saying that the gospel is a universal gospel. It's for everybody, no matter what their background, color, culture, education, whatever. The same gospel designed for men and women everywhere in the world. Well, that's a good thought, of course. We know today that there are many more species of fish than 153. So I am not a fan of people trying to find any kind of secret numerology in Scripture. Given what we've seen here in the Gospel of John's eye for detail, it seems very rational to me, and the simplest answer is, is the one to go to first, and that is that he actually counted how many fish there were in the catch, which is the normal thing fishermen do before taking their fish to market. They had to know how many they had to know how many they were selling. And that was how John wrote. So don't get sucked into any of that numerology stuff really anywhere in Scripture. The plain answer is usually the right one. John didn't embed any kind of secret code here. He saves kind of the code words, actually, for the book of Revelation. But that's a different topic. So as Jesus gathered with these men on the shore, he invited them to eat with him, and he is drawing them back together under his tutelage. There was some unfinished business, some healing that needed to happen, and so Jesus turns to the work of shepherding with this conversation between Jesus and Peter that's recorded starting with verse uh, 15. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went out where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? 
Well, clearly this encounter is designed to parallel the scene of Peter's three-time denial of Jesus in the courtyard. Several details of it are common to both accounts. First, both took place beside a charcoal fire. It was while warming himself over the charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest that Peter denied the Lord. Here, standing beside a charcoal fire supplied by Jesus himself, Peter is requested to affirm his love for Jesus. Both in the incident in the courtyard and on this occasion on the beach, a threefold statement is involved. Three times Peter denied Jesus, and three times he is asked to affirm his love. As some commentators have pointed out, there are two different Greek words here used, in, used for love in this uh, exchange. Agape, which means unconditional love, the love that is a decision one makes to commit oneself wholly to another for the other person's benefit. That's agape or agape. And philia, which is, is affection, the love that we naturally feel like in families, like friendship or like uh, the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, but just don't walk through South Philly wearing a Houston Astros ball cap. Jesus uses agape in the first two questions to Peter. Do you agape me more than these? And two times Peter responds, Lord, you know I phileo you. But in the third question, Jesus goes to Peter's level and uses phileo. Do you phileo me? And Peter responds with the same word. Now, some folks try to build a big case here that there's some great significance in the very usages of the word for love. I'm not really of that persuasion myself. I think Jesus is testing Peter's ego his hubris that has gotten him into trouble so many times before. Do you love me more than these disciples love me? I think that's where the emphasis should be. Peter, do you think you're better than these other guys? Because remember, before he denied Jesus, Peter had inferred that he loved Jesus much more than the other disciples, that he was sort of, you know, disciple number one. John 16, 37, Peter said that he would lay down his life for Jesus Matthew 26, 34 adds that Peter said, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Clearly, Peter had this superiority complex and has regarded himself as more faithful and more committed than the others, whom he expected would desert the Lord in a time of danger. So Jesus addresses these words to him, do you love me more than these? Peter has learned some painful but necessary lessons, and in his response, he does not judge or compare himself in relationship to the others, but just speaks from his own heart and replies, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. He makes no mention of the others. Peter's response shows that he has learned to read Jesus' mind a bit better. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he felt that his love for Jesus required him to physically assault the enemies of his Lord with a sword. But here he learns that he is responsible to feed the sheep of Jesus. That is the correct manifestation of his love. Jesus repeats that chief work of a shepherd. Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus is saying that he's entrusting a great responsibility to Peter to care for the children of God, to watch over, guard, teach, comfort, correct, direct, feed, and nurture. All the things a shepherd does for his sheep. We can tell Peter got the message about humility and responsibility. In his own letter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says this to the elders who lead, who lead the church. To the elders among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. 
Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watch over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Being a shepherd of God's flock most imitates the work of Christ. Go back and review the podcast episodes about Jesus as the good shepherd so that you can kind of refresh your mind on that. Because for Jesus to pass this challenge on to Peter, it really is the highest honor that he could give. And Peter has to receive it with a broken and contrite heart, as the psalmist says. One of the very saddest things about the American church today, and probably globally too, is that there are so many who serve with the title of pastor who are no longer caring properly for God's sheep because they've abandoned or abused the teachings of Scripture for their people. This is not a new problem. British poet and Puritan preacher John Milton wrote these somber words about his own time in the year 1638. He writes, The hungry sheep look up and are not fed. Such a powerful, damning image. God's people starving for the word of God, but they're not getting it from their pastors. They're not getting scripture rightly understood and presented. And consequently, people are not thinking the thoughts of God, not looking at life the way God sees it. They're starving, but following blindly after the illusions of the world. What is necessary is the unfolding of the mind of God in obedience to the word of Jesus. The weakness of the church flows from this famine of the word of God rightly taught and understood. But it is more than just teaching. As Jesus goes on to point out in further word to Peter, verses 18 and 19, uh, for Peter, following Jesus is going to involve more than just teaching others. It would ultimately involve pain and suffering, privation and death. This was historically fulfilled. Clearly, this book was written after the death of Peter, as John records the way Peter would die. Eusebius, the church historian, tells us that Peter went to Rome at the close of his life, and Peter did not found the church at Rome at all. There's some confusion over that fact with our Roman Catholic friends. There's no evidence biblically or historically that he was ever in Rome before he went there late in life when he was imprisoned and eventually uh, with his hands bound and when he was led out to the place of execution. And there he requested to be crucified upside down because he did not feel he was worthy to share the same manner of death as Jesus. So Jesus is saying that preaching and teaching the word of truth in a mixed up world is going to call for sacrifice from Peter. And Peter was privileged to teach and to suffer for the sake of the word of God. Now, ultimately, Peter obeyed his Lord. He had said, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus replied, you will indeed, but not like what you once thought. Not in defense of me with a sword, but in teaching and preaching of the word. And eventually you will lay down your life for me. Peter had to overcome any sense of rivalry and competition with others in the church. The Gospels clearly indicate that Jesus eliminated competition as a motivation for Christian leadership. When in the upper room, he demonstrated that servant leadership by washing the feet of his disciples. Unfortunately, the church seems to have lost that humility of mind and leadership today. And we see this constant parade of celebrity preachers whose main goal seems to be to draw attention to themselves and to have, you know, quote unquote, a successful church, which always means bigger, 
Bigger is always better. Bigger, flashier. That gets your book sold. Bigger gets you the conference speaker spots. The church has followed the world in this regard, adopting the values and standards and style of kind of whatever works. And people flock to it. But somehow I think we're diminishing the basic message of Jesus. So for every Christian leader or preacher out there, Jesus says, you be you and serve your flock with integrity and biblical passion. We do not have to worry about what others are doing, but our focus always needs to be on how to be faithful to what God has given for us to do. You know, in a symphony orchestra, a violinist will not go around checking what the guy on the trombone is playing, or will the oboe worry about whether or not the trumpet guy is going to come in on time. That's the business of the conductor. These people play their parts, and the conductor puts it all together. That's how Christ's church should operate. We're to fulfill the gifts God has given us. He will put it all together. We are not in competition with anybody. We don't have to struggle for position. We each have been given a ministry, not only leaders and preachers and teachers, but to every Christian. Everyone has been given gifts of the Spirit, and they should define what ministry we're involved in. How simple, how beautiful that is. How effective the church would become if we would just return to that. Just give people Jesus in all his simplicity and authenticity. And that's what I think Jesus wants. Then the last word here is for both the fisherman and the shepherd. And we rest everything on a reliable testimony, verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. As I said in the beginning, this Cleese closing words are obviously written partly by John and partly by those who were associated with him, probably in Ephesus. It is John who writes, this is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and who has written these things. And that was his last word his own eyewitness account of what Jesus said and did. But those who were associated with him, very likely elders of the church at the time, picked up the pen and wrote, and we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things which Jesus did, which every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John had told them many other things which Jesus did that he didn't include in his gospel including some things that are not even included in the other Gospels. If everything from this marvelous life of Jesus had been written, the accounts would have so intrigued people they would have endlessly written so that all the libraries of earth could not contain the books. Well, here we are at the end. What a marvelous life our Lord lived. Though we've been treated to only sections of it, we have all we need. We have an adequate testimony that we can rely on. These things were written, John said, that you may believe in that Jesus is the Messiah and by believing you may have life in his name. We all have what we need to have that life. But it is not the absolute whole story. And this is where John closes his account of the life of Jesus. Every follower of Jesus can rest upon the revelation of, of God in the word of God. And what a reliable testimony it is. So thanks for going on this 53-week uh, journey with me through the Gospel of John. If you've done every episode, you deserve a gold star. You know, my goal for this podcast in Gospel Wabi Sabi is to 
Help us all just to fall in love with Jesus. Follow him in simplicity. Use the gifts he has given you. Be open to others to treat them in the same kind of wabi-sabi way of seeing their value even while flawed by sin. To emulate the character and the actions of Jesus. To have hope in our troubled times. And to know that God has great things in store for each one of us. We'll see you in season two on the Psalms. Have a great week. Thank you.